Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Ontario's Greenbelt plan could be subjected to a judicial review. We also tackle Premier Doug Ford's mandate letters. Hamilton's tiny shelters debate remains white hot. A new COVID vaccine is coming. Adult literacy skills are lacking. And a Hamilton musician has a new album. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. A public meeting to discuss... Greenbelt, a green belt development in Ancaster tomorrow night has actually been moved from the Ancaster Memorial Arts Center to the Ancaster Fairgrounds to accommodate what is expected to be a large, very large audience. It's going to begin tomorrow night at 6.30. Now, a week ago today, more than 500 people packed into the Ancaster Memorial Arts Center to weigh in on the removal of 795 hectares from the green belt locally, including... Michelle Silverton. The guy who said he wouldn't touch the green belt, Ford, he also said that he would not overrule a municipal decision with an MZO. Let's let him launder his dirty deal. That is not up to us to do. Let's stand back and let him do it. Feedback from that meeting is going to be presented at a special planning committee meeting on Thursday, tomorrow, which is also going to be at the Ancaster Arts Center and open to the public. Meantime, there is a Hamilton councillor who's planning to introduce a motion to ask for a judicial review of the Ford government's Greenbelt land decision. And that councillor joins us on GMH. His name is Paul John Paul Danko, and he is a councillor for Ward 8 in the city of Hamilton. JP, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well today. A judicial review. Why go down this route? This is a, a direct response, actually, to the residents that were at the last public information meeting. And one of them asked, um, you know, what is the city doing? Why aren't you uh, doing everything that you possibly can to challenge this decision? And one of the ideas that was raised was a judicial review. And it's something that we had talked about before internally uh, when the decision was originally made. Uh, but at that time, we we didn't feel like we had enough information or, or uh, you know, really grounds that we could file a judicial review. Since then, uh, there's been some fairly significant uh, revelations that give us a little bit more of an opportunity uh, to challenge that decision in court. And also, you know, I don't want residents to think that this is a silver bullet that, you know, we're going to file a judicial review and, and the problem solved because it's an extremely high bar to pass. You know, we have to prove that the government of Ontario made an error in law and the government makes the laws. So how do you how do you prove that the government of Ontario made an error when they control, you know, basically what the laws are? But having said that, I, I think there are some pretty serious grounds to suggest that perhaps this decision in particular uh, wasn't actually fair or lawful. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but as this judicial review process kind of kickstarts with your motion, are you not still working with the provincial land facilitator to develop these lands? The, the direction of the staff is to still have those conversations with the land facilitator. Um, it is important that you know, from a, a governance perspective, that we share our concerns with the province directly, and the facilitator is a way to do that. But at the same time, when we look at some of the information that's come out in the past year since the uh, decision was originally made, we have the Provincial Affordability Task Force, Housing Affordability Task Force, which 
said that you don't need to expand into the Greenbelt to build more houses. We have the report from the Auditor General, uh, which raised some very serious concerns about the process that was used to select the lands, and also that there may be not only violations of the Greenbelt Plan, but also violations of other provincial acts with other jurisdictions. Then we have the Integrity Commissioner's report, which again kind of validates and expands on the Auditor General, which, uh, you know, had some, again, really serious concerns about how these lands were actually selected, that it wasn't an open and fair process. You've got Minister Clark himself uh, being found guilty of the Members' Integrity Act and then resigning, um, which, again, kind of confirms that uh, this process wasn't open and fair. And then you've got the Premier himself publicly stating that the process was flawed. So that's on the record. The Premier saying, you know, in an interview, yeah, this process was flawed. Well, if it was flawed, then it should be reversed. And that's... uh, you know, what we want to ask staff to review, and is there anything there that we can actually challenge in court? Considering you're uh, thinking about launching a judicial review, and again, this still has to be passed by council, but it also sounds like you're not satisfied with the government's decision to conduct its own review of this Greenbelt scandal. Well, they've specifically excluded, you know, the lands that they've already taken out. So, that's a real mystery to me if they've already admitted publicly that the process was wrong and it was flawed and it favored uh, certain developers over others. And, you know, we're going to do better in the future. So we're going to do this review of the rest of the green belt, but we're still going to move forward with the land that we've already removed. That, that makes no sense at all. Um, so I, I think that could be one of the remedies that we would ask the court to impose. Um, the court's not going to overrule public or sorry um, government policy, but they could say, "Well, yeah, we agree with you that the process was wrong, so do an open and public process." Um, and, and you know, there's no reason why these lands couldn't be, you know, put the protections put back on, and then it rolled into this new process that the government's talking about. Really quick, Re- as, really yeah. quick as we got to run. If this judicial review process is passed by council, how soon could it begin? Well, we would have to file within 30 days of receiving new information. So the clock is ticking. Uh, We would have to get a a note back from legal staff as soon as possible as to what the feasibility is and also what are the possible outcomes that we could receive from the court. That's what we need to find out from legal staff. Well, I'll leave it there. We'll certainly follow up on this uh, sometime in the future. JP, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me on. John Poldenko, Councillor Ward 8, City of Hamilton. Uh, Will a judicial review be passed by council? That uh, remains to be seen as uh, councillors gather around the table later on today and in the days to come. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It's our favorite topic, the green belt. Unlike other governments that don't listen to people, I've heard it loud and clear. People don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. We want a province where people have a right and can expect that their government is going to make the decisions that benefit them, not a couple of developers who are going to make billions off of these land swaps. You've got the premier himself publicly stating that the process was flawed. Well, if it was flawed, then it should be reversed. Well, there is also what is being called Premier Doug Ford's mandate letters to his cabinet ministers, holding his cabinet ministers to account, making them accountable for, well, how he wanted his government to operate. And in a Global News exclusive, 
Our next guest has been breaking down these mandate letters. And yesterday's edition, and even the day before, shows that, well, things were not going according to plan. Colin DeMello is our Queens Park Bureau Chief of Global News and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Colin, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me. So really, in a nutshell, these mandate letters are, I mean, you talk about an explosive uh, wrinkle, new wrinkle to this Greenbelt debate. I mean, this this is massive. Give us a sense of what you've uncovered. Well, the 2018 mandate letters in full. <laughs> that's the that's the, the the short story here. Uh, the the Ford government has been since 2018 trying to keep these mandate letters out of the public eye. Right, basically. Um, these are instructions given to cabinet ministers in terms of what the government expects their cabinet ministers to do. Uh, these, these letters come in two forms. There's one, a boilerplate statement that goes out to all of the cabinet ministers, laying out the general ideological approach to governing. And then there's also a set of bullet points that the individual cabinet ministers would receive, essentially saying, here are the list of objectives we want you to carry out. And, and those objectives are, you know, the marrying of three things, right? What the party wants, what the platform was in the 2018 election, and what the premier wants as well. So we've, we, we see in these mandate letters uh, a general sense that the government wanted to turn the page on 15 years of liberal rule and all of the potential scandals uh, that that government was associated with. The premier said his was going to be a government with high ethical standards. He told his cabinet ministers that he expected that of them, that they would be holding themselves to the highest ethical standard, and that the premier himself would be personally holding all of them accountable. If you take the words of 2018 and you kind of marry it with what happened in 2022-2023 with this Greenbelt scandal, you can very quickly see that what the premier intended his government to be back in 2018 when he first took office is not what his government is today, right? The government is mired in scandal. They are being accused of helping some select insiders, developers gain massive benefits simply through their relationships and donations with government. Uh, we've also seen, you know, multiple people implicated in this, whether it's the chief of staff to the housing minister who met with developers and, you know, allowed the process to be influenced by them. Or the housing minister who realized this was going to be a scandalous thing opening up the green belt. And so he turned a blind eye to it, uh, it entirely and abdicated the idea of ministerial responsibility. At no point throughout any of that did the premier specifically mm-hmm. said, this does not hold up to my high ethical standards. And he didn't say, you know, I want your resignation. There was no action taken by the premier on at least that we could it is quite instructive to see what the premier intended for his government back in 2018 and how things are playing out now because it's it's two very different governments do we know i'm not sure the mandate letter is going to suggest this but do we know what the trigger was in because back in 2018 it was hey don't touch the green belts 2022 the mandate letters were hey let's look at opening up the green belt what was the trigger well, well, I mean, I think the trigger essentially was the fact that the government had won a re-election, a, a stronger, larger mandate. And, you know, typically governments like to do the really, you know, potentially explosive stuff right at the beginning of the mandate. Right. Because then, you know, by year four, a lot of people might forget about the really scandalous stuff and they might re-elect you. So if you look at the pattern of uh, this government in its first mandate, 
they did all of the cuts early, the cuts to Toronto City Council, uh, the budget cuts. They did all of the really uh, controversial stuff early on in the mandate. It's the same thing here, right, with the with the added private delivery of public health care. That's all being done in the first co- couple of months and years of the mandate so that by 2026, a lot of voters and the anger over those situations may have subsided. That could be one thing. The other thing here is... You know, before the 2018 election, the premier had met with a handful of supporters in Markham and they had asked him, this is caught, this was caught on video. Uh, they had asked him about, you know, housing supply and housing affordability. And the premier went on this long rant about the green belt. And back in 2018, this was Feb of 2018, he said, you know, the former liberals basically, you know, drew a big swipe of green across the map and that's how they created the green belt, Right. Those talking points have stayed with the premier. Those are the same talking points that the premier offers up in 2023, five years after. So I think it leads you to believe that the premier has never really changed course on what he's wanted to do do with the green belt. It was that he got caught in 2018, wasn't able to implement it, and in 2022 felt bold enough to be able to pull the trigger. We got 90 seconds to talk about today's installation of this mandated series. You can find it online at globalnews.ca. Premier Ford's 2018 mandate letters demanded savings by year two. What what are we going to be finding out today? Yeah, the Premier had specific instructions for his finance minister and the uh, the president of the Treasury Board and all cabinet ministers. They were going to be given a specific list of, you know, spending restraints, and they had to work within that envelope, that financial envelope. Uh, Savings, finding efficiencies and reducing government spending was one of the largest priorities. So he told his finance minister, we want savings by year two and full savings by year three, which led to wild budget cuts in the first year of the mandate that made the government deeply, deeply unpopular. The premier also told his ministers, you know, you will find some people who are in opposition to what we're trying to do, uh, essentially labor groups. And he said, quote, I am comfortable with that fact. And he told his cabinet ministers, you need to be comfortable with that fact, too. The grand irony is that it is actually the premier who has consistently backed down in the face of really strong opposition. Um, So his cabinet ministers, I'm sure, after seeing the premier's actions versus the premier's words didn't really know how they were expected to behave either so the latest installment is on our website globalnews.ca we are aiming to have the mandate letters for health and education up today and some additional mandate letters up on our website today at, at about 4 p.m exclusive and explosive stuff from colin DeMello. isaac callen big applause to him for getting uh, a lot of the online stuff done as well colin appreciate the time thanks for joining us my pleasure thank you for having me colin DeMello is the queen's park bureau chief for global news you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Yesterday, in our poll question of the day, we asked you, would you be okay with having a tiny shelter community to house the homeless in your neighborhood? Unsurprisingly, 71% said no, 29% said yes, and it was in correlation with a meeting that was scheduled Monday night at the Beneno Community Center, which was scrapped due to what the city said was serious health and safety issues at the meeting site. And so now the city's in the process of rescheduling this information meeting for the public about this tiny shelters pilot project. But there was another perspective on what happened Monday night. Uh, Some people, including our next guest, said, "Eh, I'm I'm not sure it was that serious of a health and safety issue. Victoria Mancinelli is the Director of Public Relations and Marketing and Strategic Partnerships at Leuna and joins us now on GMH. Victoria, good morning. How are you? 
Good morning, Rick. Doing well. And yourself? I'm good. So what did you see Monday? Well, I think this was another attempt by the city to villainize the North End and try to victimize themselves here. You know, they chose a venue that was not adequate, given the number of folks that showed up to the first meeting. They should have been better prepared. They locked the washroom facilities. They had no microphone or speakers set up in the gymnasium to speak. It was just completely, completely disorganized. And we all got a sense of disingenuine uh, feelings here that this was not set up to hear the concerns of residents. So you think this was doomed to fail from the start? Absolutely. So should the go forward plan to hold this in a bigger venue to accommodate a bigger crowd and, well, actually hear from the crowd? I think they should. Absolutely. You know, the city is taking a strong stance saying they care about the community's concerns here. Again, this is all after the fact. Council has already voted on this matter. So it seems like a way for them to try to save some political face as well, given the tensions that have arised now in the North End. So I just don't think it's authentic anymore. And they prove themselves time and time again. You know, Michelle Baird was on your show yesterday and said that they take zero responsibility for what is currently happening in the North End. So which one is it here? You know, does the city care about the concerns of residents living in Ward 2 or do they not care? Because the feeling we're getting is that they do not care. The city said the meeting on Monday was shut down due to serious health and safety issues at the meeting site. Did you see any of that? I did not. Listen, there is absolutely no room for violence or threats of any kind. And both sides of this deserve a safe and respectful forum to be heard. That being said, I was in the gym from 645 until 745, 8 o'clock. Aside from a very, very minor altercation that occurred that lasted mere seconds, we did not hear or see anything at the level of the city saying, you know, very serious health and safety concerns. And that being said, you know, there's serious health and safety concerns going on in the ward that have been ignored. So when does health health and safety here matter? When it's with the city or when it's with the residents? Is it sometimes or is it all the time? So I'm not really buying it. But that being said, if something had occurred, which, you know, none of us had seen or heard, then of course there's no room for it. But it seems like a little bit of a cop-out because the city didn't want to address the concerns here. Last question for you. What do you want to see in this strong street pilot project that, as we know, is is going forward? What 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 communication would you like to give to the city? You know, I think the city here really needs to regroup. I think they have to take into the consideration of the level of anger, discomfort, and concerns that residents have, valid concerns, and really sit down and relook at the criteria set out by HATS because this site does not even meet half of the criteria to ensure success. So the same way that the city has set up this meeting to fail, seems that they're setting up this pilot to fail. And if they want it to succeed, we really need to regroup here. Let's find a site that is going to foster success. Let's work together. Let's rally behind it. And let's find tangible solutions instead of a quick Band-Aid fix. An impassioned speech from Victoria Mancinelli from Leuna. Victoria, thank you for your time. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. Victoria is the Director of Public Relations, Marketing, Strategic Partnerships at Leona. When we find out the date and, of course, location of the next meeting to discuss this tiny shelters pilot project, we will definitely be the first to let you know. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Now, this new vaccine, which was approved yesterday by Health Canada, targets... This Omicron XBB15 sub variant. 
and it is being recommended by Health Canada for people six months of age and older. And yesterday we heard from Chief Public Health Officer Dr. Teresa Tam. Yeah, remember her? She says the number of COVID-19 cases in Canada is on the rise. We know immunity does uh, decrease with time. So part of the reasons that we think there's an increase in uptick right now is this reduced immunity over time, which is why there's a recommendation to get the updated vaccine if it's been six months since uh, your last infection or vaccination. Hospitalizations tied to COVID right now, there's about 2,000 people in hospital right now. And I, I'm, this is not about fear-mongering and this is not about, you know, demanding that you get the shot. This is just an information piece to say this is what is going on. Do not send me any hate mail, please. I get enough email during the day. Thomas Tenkate is a professor in the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University and is back with us here on GMH. Thomas, good morning. How are you? Uh, good, thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming on. This is, uh, I think, an important topic to talk about, even though we are really tired of talking about COVID-19 <laughs> at this point. But federal officials, and I find this interesting, they're not calling these shots booster shots, but just an updated option that's similar to the annual flu shot. Why is that type of messaging important? Yeah, I, I think what they're trying to do is to sort of shift people away from the the aspect of boosters uh, associated with the pandemic to the fact that we're really in a steady state now uh the the endemic phase of of the what we've moved from pandemic to endemic what means it's basically circulating within the community all the time now and uh what we know is that uh we're coming into in essence the flu season what's now going to include covid uh, an increase in COVID cases. And so we, we, in essence, we have to think about it in the same terms as uh, getting, say, your, your annual flu shot, because basically the vaccines, what we've seen is that they, they tend to start to wane, your immunity starts to wane about six months or so. And so if it's been longer than that, since you've had a, uh, either as Dr. Tam said, either been infected, so had it been, had COVID or have uh, had a, uh, had a shot, then your immunity is starting to wane. And if it's starting to wane as we're moving into this uh, season where we're going to expect to see a higher number of cases, then it puts you more at risk. So so it's really uh, normalizing our perspective on what what this is. Uh, and, uh, you know, in essence saying, let's virtually think about this in ter- the same terms as, as uh, getting an annual COVID, uh, annual annual uh, flu shot. So so that's that's I think that's why they're going for that sort of messaging. Because COVID was so scarring to the psyche, both mentally and for many people physically, uh, many people lost loved ones due to COVID-19. Given that, do you think it is going to be a tougher sell to push these COVID vaccines as opposed to the flu vaccine, in which, you know, year in and year out, the flu vaccine uptake is, I don't know, 50, 60 percent uh, do you think we hit that kind of number with the COVID, uh, the new COVID yeah. shot? Uh, I, I I agree that it's probably it's a, in some ways a harder sell from the and and in one way to look at that is look at the numbers of of uh, vaccines or that were uh, implemented for say the first two shots and then the the first booster and the second booster uh, under the you know the original regime of of, of vaccinations for COVID and uh, you know we saw a you know a really high uptake for the first two shots um, and then quite a drop 
quite a dramatic drop off for the first booster and then another drop off for the second booster. So it was, it was probably about, I think, about a quarter of the people uh, got the the second booster versus what what you know had the the first two. And so, to you know, that indicates that people sort of had that sort of booster fatigue, you could say. Uh, but but I suppose what I would sort of say to people is. Think about this in terms of you know your risk uh, that you have or the risk you the risk people that have who you you have you're in contact with, and and think about it uh, uh, similar to if you normally get the flu shot, I would say you know at the same time get get the uh, the COVID shot as well because if we look at data and numbers of of cases, say last year we there were more at this you know during the in flu season, you could say there were more cases of COVID than there were of, of influenza. Uh, and so if we add the the other one that we talk about, what's called RSV, you know, you've got this really sort of magnitude of of, of impact uh, all, all happening at the same time, sort of from November through November through January. We have 90 more seconds with Thomas Tenkate, professor in the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. And we're talking about the latest vaccine for COVID-19 that's targeting Omicron XBB15, the subvariant, and that's going to be made available uh, to all of us starting in October. Do you think any sort of vaccine mandate is going to come back? And I think that's the, the one thing we don't want to see. And I'm in particular looking at the healthcare field. Yeah, <clears throat> my sense is that uh, that you know for the general community, I don't see like a, a vaccine mandate. But but I would say that for for uh, you know people who are working in the healthcare field, uh, I would say you know yes that that's that would be likely that you know it'd go on the um, you know if they normally get the uh, you know, required to have a flu shot, they would this would this would become a a requirement for them as well, and also. For, for say for people for people who are in uh, long-term care homes uh, that and you know I think it's a it's a good idea for 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 them as residents to also have it given the you know outbreaks that we we see uh, that that happen regularly so so I think it's it's really sort of risk specific in terms of your own risk level or the 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 level of risk that people you have contact with Thomas as always I uh, thank you for your time and I wish you a great day. Yeah, thank you very much, Rick. Have a great day, too. Thank you. Thomas Tenkate is a professor in the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, by the way, Dr. Tam saying that Canadians can safely get both their flu and COVID shots during the same appointment. So uh, take that as you may. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, it's back to school. We know the kids have been in class for, what, over, over a week now? They're learning stuff. Many of them are learning their, not only their one, two, threes, but their ABCs. But it's not just children who are back in class this month. A lot of adults are going back to school. And it's a good thing, too, because 48% of adults in Canada have literacy skills that fall below a high school level. It's according to the latest study out. And obviously this has an impact in terms of what kind of job they can get, what kind of person they are in the community when it comes to making financial decisions, for for one example. Alison Howard is an executive director with ABC Life Literacy Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Alison, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. Boy, that 48% of adults having literacy skills below a high school level, 
That is much higher than I thought it would be. Yeah, it is very concerning, and it affects so many different aspects of people's lives, from their employability to uh, being able to understand their own health needs and find services where they need them, um, digital literacy skills, all kinds of things are affected by that. Is a large portion of that percentage, and I'm not sure if you have these hard numbers, but is a large percentage uh, immigrants coming to this country with not English as a first language? Well, uh Literacy is a little bit different than language skills. Many okay. newcomers to Canada do have very high literacy skills in their own languages, but um, there are that's certainly an aspect of it, but there are many, many reasons why uh, Canadians also have lower literacy skills. So the question is, are we seeing a lot of these adults going back to school? I'm, I'm sure there's a hesitation. There certainly is. There are so many different challenges that adults face uh, compared to children in returning to the classroom. Uh, we need to balance employment and family responsibilities, and coordinating transportation, things like that, as well as just a general anxiety around returning to the classroom, especially if you've had some negative experiences in the past. Absolutely, and especially if English isn't your first language. I mean, there's another added layer of, of trying to learn a new language and these literacy skills. What are some of the things uh, that ABC Life Literacy Canada will uh, teach adults who, who need these literacy skills? Well, ABC Life Literacy Canada is a national nonprofit. We provide introductory learning materials at no cost to learners and educators. And so we provide uh, materials that will help people improve their workplace literacy skills, financial, health literacy, also digital literacy. That's so important for so many aspects of life these days. Let's dive into the digital literacy because there are there are people, uh, uh, young and old, who are not in this boat. And, and, you know, my digital literacy skills, you know, reach a certain point. And I, th- I think everyone's kind of different in terms of how comfortable and how user-friendly they find things. But it's an important aspect of the Go Forward plan because we know AI is around, the digital landscape is huge in our economy and in our daily lives. That's right. And we know that around 84% of jobs in Canada now require the use of a computer and basic technical skills. Yeah, and without those, you're, I mean, you're up against it. That's right. Even things like um, outside of the workplace, like doing your banking or accessing health information, if you cannot access those things online, you're really at a disadvantage these days. I mentioned the hesitation earlier, and I'm sure there is a lot of that. And you pointed out to, you know, uh, bad experiences in the past. But the benefits, I am sure, if you can find the time, especially, and, you know, some people are working one, if not more than one job just to make ends meet in today's kind of inflationary climate. But the benefits of going back to school as an adult must be huge because there's a there's a whole new world that opens up for you. That's right. And as mentioned, you can improve your employability, your ability to support your children with their learning. It helps to uh, engage people in their community and civic, you know, and voting, all kinds of different things. But one of the advantages of materials from ABC Life Literacy Canada is that we offer them in two different ways. One of which is an online learning portal, our uh, ABC Skills Hub, and that offers the opportunity to access our materials at your own pace, at home, it's private, um, it's very convenient for everyone, but we also offer them as uh, two-hour in-person workshops at local community organizations across Canada. Wow, and is there a cost to it? No, everything is absolutely free. 
Wow, amazing. More details online at abcliferacy.ca. A whole new world can be opened up uh, for you if you're an adult in this country who uh, 48% of them have literacy skills that fall below a high school level. Allison, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for sharing some insight on this topic. Thank you so much. Allison Howard is the executive director of ABC Life Literacy Canada. Again, those those free tools for you to use, they're right there for you, ABC Life Literacy You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Kyle Pacey is a Hamilton-based singer-songwriter, Hamilton Music Awards nominee, a new album out called Road Songs, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Kyle, good morning. How are you? Hi, Rick. Good morning. It's good to talk to you, sir. Hey, congrats on the new album, Road Songs. Tell us about compiling the songs for this album. Thank you very much. I do appreciate that. Uh... Road songs I recorded. I, uh, I don't, it's hard to say. Actually, it's not hard to say. It's very easy to say. Uh, road songs is about the man's uh, problems facing the world. You know, um, that's what Sad Days the song is about. And also, once again, the song is about. Um, I was inspired to write uh, this song, this music, because I want to make a contribution to help our, our planet. Because you know. This this type of thing has been bothering me since since I was a kid in the sixties. Um, the songs are basically about climate change, humanitarian emergencies. Uh, there's one or two love songs on it too, and uh, they're basically upbeat, funky type songs. But uh, road songs and uh, sorry, road song. I have a song on on the CD called Road Songs. <laughs> but uh, anyways. Uh, the album is, it's, you know, got a lot of good, good grooves, I would say. Um, I have a video out for Sad Days, and Sad Days and the song, once again, are both about the world situation. Yeah, and it is a troubling situation, as we know, as the world gets hotter and, and things are dying, and we're, we, 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 you know, we have a, a much different world today than we even had in the 60s, as you can attest to. But I want to ask you about The Damage Is Done. It's another song that's out now. Yeah, the da- oh, okay, certainly, certainly, the damage is done. Yeah, the, the damage is done, Rick. It's it's you know about it's a, it's a love song. Yeah. Uh, the you know uh, the chord first the Ford, uh, the chord progression came to me, and then the lyrics. And, uh, it was kind of like a whirlwind. I wanted to evoke uh, the highs and lows of a relationship, you know, with the music and express the emotions of an uh, how can I put it an unquenched romance with with the lyrics. And uh, the recording it was part of a five-song EP, you know, as Road Songs is, done with four players in a day-long session at Grand Avenue Studio. Hmm. Uh, we recorded the guitar, bass, drums, and keyboards, along with my vocals at Grand Avenue. And, uh, Rick, what we did there was we did a rough mix of the sessions, Then I took it to Pine Street Studio in Hamilton, where I did some additional vocal work and did the final mix. An unquenched romance. It sounds sad. Yeah, it is. Uh, like, uh... It's kind of, I'm playing with the lyrics, it's like, the damage is done, girl, you got me where I want you. Like, she's got me where I want her. <laughs> yes. It's like, I, changed, I turned it around, like, uh, being kind of, uh, I don't... I think a lot of people have been in... Satirical. Yeah, I think a lot of people have been in that situation. Is this a, is this a personal song? Uh, yeah, it is, actually. It, it, it is. Um, those, those are some of the best songs, though. 
Yeah, it is because when, like, I have when I, you know, we used to go out with back way back when I was a kid. I used to first time I ever kissed a girl, I, I kissed her and I, I hurt. We we bumped teeth by mistake. <laughs> you know, so I that was so I've always had kind of a clumsy way. That that would make uh, for an unquenched romance for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> hey, Kyle, I want to ask you about this. I want to ask you about this. You were the first local musician to play Hamilton Place. I didn't know that. That's right. Yeah, I'll never forget that, Rick. It was. Uh, it was on June the twelfth. It was at Hamilton Place. Um, I opened up for uh, Duke Ellington. Although I gotta say, he passed on the week before, so his son Mercer Ellington took over. Oh wow! So I was playing with my jazz trio. We used to play a place. I'll tell you, Rick. If I may tell you really fast here, a place called the Grange in Hamilton, which was a really good spot. And uh, there were two bands, uh, Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, who later became the band, mm-hmm. had a husky at the Grange. And the only other band to ever have a husky at the Grange was my band, uh, the Kyle Pacey Trio. Wow. That was in 1972, before I went to Los Angeles. And uh, I, I'll never forget, 1974, I did open for Duke Ellington and Hamilton Place. That is amazing. The new album's called Road Songs. There's a great number of songs on that album. You can get it now wherever you get your music. Kyle, appreciate the time. Best of luck with this uh, latest project. Rick, I, I, I want to thank you very much. And, uh, geez, all I can tell you is peace, because, you know, I'm a diehard hippie. <laughs> right back <laughs> at you. That's all I can tell you. Oh, may I give you my uh, website? Okay, go ahead. Thank you. My website is www.kylepacy.com, and you, you know you can listen to my music on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Music, other platforms, or you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. That is tremendous. Kyle, enjoy the day. Rick, I sincerely thank you, sir. Kyle Pacey, Hamilton-based singer-songwriter. Check out his new album, Road Songs. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.